Welcome to Dev Educate, a show about how to engage and market to developers without being salesy. I'm your host, Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me on my mission to reduce net developer frustration in the world as I interview experts and leaders in the developer relations space so we can uncover the strategies and tactics that will help you blow away barriers to developer adoption for your product. Hey everyone, welcome to Dev Educate. I'm Kamran Ayub. Today I'm joined by Ivan Barazan. Ivan, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, I reached out to you because I had found you in the developer marketing Slack community and I was talking about, there was some post I did about game-based education or game-based learning and you had replied to it and said, we're, we're, we're building a game for our API tool. And I was like, what? I want to learn more about that. So I've invited you here onto the podcast today to talk to us about game-based learning and what you're building. And as I understand it, you also are co-founded and were the CEO of Code Anywhere in the past. And Code Anywhere is a cloud-based IDE for developers. So do you, for folks that are hearing you for the first time, do you just want to share a little bit about who you are and kind of what brought you to this point? Sure. We probably won't go too far back. So yeah, uh, maybe Code Anywhere as far back as it makes sense. So Code Anywhere, we started that in 2009, me and my co-founder. I started as a cloud-based text editor because it was 2009. And the idea was always sort of to help, you know, speed up the velocity of developers using the cloud. And then over time, it matured into a cloud-based IDE. And we did like sort of table it for a while. And during that time, I founded a conference, a developer conference called Shift, which brought me to InfoBip and a bit on that later. But Code Anywhere actually sort of back in the sense that we're actually relaunching the product next week. And it's a cloud-based development environment now. So it went from cloud-based text editor to cloud-based IDE to cloud-based development environment. All the same vision, just technology enabled different things to happen. And it seems that there's a lot happening in this space right now. So if anyone's interested, stay tuned. The website will be relaunched really soon with all these sort of new features and things. And we can talk about that later. But anyway, Fantastic. during that journey, went to a lot of conferences. I liked them. And I started a conference down in Croatia. Ended up being the largest conference in that part of the world. and now hosts about 5,000 people annually. So generally a fair fairly large size, not the biggest yeah. in the world, but not huge either. <laughs> I mean, there's like developer conferences, you know, Ada reInvent has like 60,000 people. So comparison is yeah. small, but a lot of conferences are usually smaller than they're usually like a thousand, thousand five hundred people, whatever. And so I did that conference and it grew and it was actually ended up being a great business and I met great people and whatnot. But at the same time, this company InfoBip, which is a, a cloud-based communications provider. So the company has an API that enables users to send SMS, email, voice, whatever it may be. I mean, if you use Uber and Uber driver calls you, that's InfoBip's voice communication, right? If a mm -hmm. bank sends you SMS, it's probably InfoBip or one of the competitors. So InfoBip was founded out of a Croatian village and bootstrapped to a billion dollars in revenue, which is insane. Wow. I've only heard that one or two more times. And they've always been a top-down sales motion company, never bottom-up. That's why a lot of people haven't heard of it. And just being in Croatia and serendipity, serendipitously, I met the founders. They knew about both the conference and Code Anywhere, and they were really interested for me to join the company. It took a while, two years for them to get me on board. 
And the court lost, it came to the point where they're like, we will acquire your company and, <laughs> and that's it. We're going to um, get you. <laughs> yeah. So they acquired the Shift Conference, which is now InfoBips Shift Conference. It's still a vendor agnostic conference and, you know, it's also expanding. So it's, one is in Croatia and one is going to be in Miami this year. A lot smaller will be the one in Miami, but still first time in the US. And I became their chief developer experience officer, running everything from obviously the conference to DevRel and the startup program. The entire idea of the department and the role I was given was to create a bottom-up self-service motion for developers and get them on board to InfoBit. Yeah, actually. So I really sort of caught on to that part of what you were talking about because it it resonates a little bit with some of the clients that I work with. And so just to be clear, InfoBip started with selling to like B2B first, right? Yeah. Like commercial companies. Yeah. Growing through commercial customers. And now after they've grown quite a bit, now they want to introduce like a developer first or a developer, you know, developer led strategy. Is that, is that right? Exactly. That's exactly right. That's awesome. So your role right now is is chief developer experience officer, but it sounds like maybe you do like marketing and like developer relations or how would, how would you describe your role? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. Yeah. So I feel like some people in developer relations say, space will say it's not marketing and it's mm -hmm. not in the way that you will define standard marketing, but one mm -hmm. part of it is definitely generating awareness. So mm -hmm way I look at it is like, we can create the best sort of experience, you know, onboarding, documentation, sign up, whatever. But if no one knows you exist, no one's going to come, right? right? So like, definitely. And if you look at different definitions of developer relations, you know, awareness is one of the key three points. So it's basically awareness, enablement, and engagement. And so a lot of what we're doing right now is on the awareness side. So I've been here two years in InfoBib and there is... Part of the engagement, so enablement part. So we've just relaunched developers portal or developer hub, sorry, public developer hub, mm -hmm. where you now, you know, where there's blog posts, where we write, where we have the new documentation, where we have software development kits that we created for developers, like all these things that will help developers use InfoBip services. But also, again, a lot of it is also just the brand awareness because it was very, it was so not known in the community at all. And so there's a lot of work to do there. So, I mean, if, if we had joined a, a different company, so I'm trying to think of a company that's, you know, very B2B, but you might know the brand, not sure, let's say any bank, you know, Bank of America, whatever it may be. And mm -hmm. to start like a bottom-up developer thing, you probably wouldn't do it for Bank of America, but if you would, it'd be a lot easier in the sense that there's brand recognition. So it's like, oh, I know this company. And now, you know, they have, they, they're enabling developers to build on top of it, whatever it may be. But with right. it, there was no brand awareness, it's like zero. So you're basically going into the market and you're telling everyone like, like this is the product we have. And also this is the company which you are and you've never heard of us. So it's like, there's two things that you have to break through to get developers to sort of sign up and to use your services. So you have to be better than competitors and you have to educate them that you actually exist. Yeah. So let's talk about that education angle because it, it does involve the awareness and, and education, you know, both of it. It's funny because, I mean, marketing literally means like educating customers on your value. And so education is, is just a default part of it, but we don't talk too much about that or we try to separate it from, you know, developer marketing versus developer education. Whereas 
I kind of right. see it as as the same thing. Like developer education is almost a superset, and developer marketing is the part where you spread that awareness. So, so what is InfoBip doing right now to kind of address that? Like, how are you how are you approaching your your marketing and your education together right now? And just to add on that, so like inside the team of DevRel specifically, so we have mm-hmm. people that work on awareness. Those are mostly the advocates. Then you have enablement. Those are the developer experience engineers. And then you actually do have education. And that will be like the technical writers, mm-hmm. the content creators, people that will actually help developers once they're there, like to educate them to use things. So we do have all three of those pillars. And that's exactly as you sort of described it. And so like when we were thinking about how we're going to go about this, like we have a blank slate, we have nothing, right? There's no, the self-service portal works at that point. So this two years ago, and that's it. There's no software development kits. The documentation is, you know, whatever it was at that point and nothing else existed and no one knows about you. So like, where do you start? And ideally you start at, you know, the foundational stuff, you know, building what you need to get developers in, but at the same time you have to, and I had no pressure from the, from the founders but just like thinking about it as being a founder before you also, it's not like you can just build for two years and wait, like, mm-hmm. like you know, more people, there is more costs. There will be issues. I mean, when we, when we started, like tech was on top of the world, like now, you know, there's layoffs every single day, like today, another two companies, you know, had layoffs. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, people do look at that. So as you're trying to, you know, create awareness at the same time, even though you're still building the things that people can use to sort of sign up. So it's sort of like a chicken and egg problem that we're solving at the same time. And we that's the way we sort of tackled it, even though we knew that a lot of the awareness that we would do would sort of just churn out. Like people would, you know, come to the website and probably wouldn't use us or use a competitor later on. But you start getting that brand awareness there. So just in a sense of quote unquote marketing is like we've been to the same conferences for the last two years, right? And and the same people usually go to the same conferences and now they've seen your logo around for the last 24 months, even if they may maybe not have used you, but that has seriously, surely like lifted the level of quality that your brand is perceived as, right? So those are the things that we had to do. So we did both things on parallel, both building and, you know, talking and creating awareness. And when we thought about it, there's like the standard things that you have to do you know, apply for CFPs, you know, go to conferences, sponsor it, do talks, do meetups, do whatever it may be. And that's okay. Feature parity on like software development kits, you know, the portal has to be good enough. All those things have to be there. But when I thought about it, like, what can I do that's sort of over the top? Because there's just so much noise in the DevRel space. And yes. the competitors to InfoWip specifically, some of them are the best DevRel companies in the world. We're talking like, they're not just a good company. They're like really good at DevRel, right? So like, how do you create awareness around yourself doing that? And so that's like one of the reasons why we have like this conference that stayed vendor agnostic. And that's why we expanded it expanding to the US. That's why we decided to go into Africa. Like we've done now, I think seven meetups across Africa. And this is like both. So it's been Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, Morocco, Egypt. So like all over and we can't explain that. And that's going really well, just since no one's been there. 
no one's been there. I mean, they're there, but not at that scale, right? Yeah. And then, so like, what can we do even more? What what can be crazier than that, right? So the end of last year, we launched our own fashion line, which might seem odd for <clears throat> a tech. That's awesome. <laughs> we launched a limited edition 300, it's those 300 hoodies, which were designed by a, a Croatian, because we're the company's out of Croatia, a Croatian mm-hmm. street style brand and our team. We co-designed it. We also embedded an NFT inside it. So there's like a, mm-hmm. you can basically scan it. There's an NFC tag that opens your NFT hoodie. So nice. there's like <laughs> designer plus NFT plus technology and all that. And, you know, so just doing that created a bunch of buzz, both in the crypto space, which sort of died down a bit lately, but in the tech space, like everywhere, it's just like people started talking about the company in a sort of cool manner which I really liked. And I mean, even one of the investors of the company, I sent him a hoodie and he's like, you are now like literally the coolest company we invested in. So <laughs> you know, those are nice things that we do. We bought an RV as well. It's painted in orange and it's now driving across the United States of America. And lastly, and that's why you sort of called me here was the video game. Like when I came, one of the team members that was assigned to me in DevRel had that company, that person has unfortunately left the company, like he wanted to leave. So it's fine. Nothing, nothing to do with layoffs right now, but he actually created a 2D Zelda style video game that uses InfoWhip's API to finish the level. It's very pretty rudimentary. It looks okay, but it's just like one level and you have to install it to be able to run it. And we use it as an onboarding game for engineers. So it's like, that's how they find their way around the API when they come on board. And being like a video game console junkie as a kid. So like I first had an Atari. So oh, yeah, an Atari, then a Nintendo Entertainment System, then a Sega Mega Drive or Genesis, depending on where you were. Yep, and so yep. on and so forth. Uh, I always wanted to be a video game. I actually wanted to do video games at some point in my life. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is like my chance to create a video game. Mm-hmm. And we took that idea. And the idea is since InfoVip has seven communication channels or seven APIs for them. So SMS, voice, email, WhatsApp, Viber, and whatnot. It's like, let's make seven levels instead of one. And it's very much, you know, Zelda Super Mario. One is like the green one. One is like the autumn one. One is the, you know, snow level. One is the lava level. And the, the game's actually titled because it's like, we wanted to sound sort of 80s, 90s, cheesy video game. It's like called Messengers Adventures. So something like that. So nice. the idea is that we launched that and that people not just in InfoBip but people from anywhere can just like try to use it as an educational tool to, to, you know, to learn how to use an API, any API, like, like if they learn how to use InfoWip, still you learn how to use other ones as well, but through this like fun two-dimensional pixel 16-bit video game, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you gave so much information and I love it because I want to, I was taking notes rapidly trying to figure out what I wanted to dive into first. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. So one thing I wanted to latch on to was that this originally came from the community, I think you said. So someone had created a 2D Zelda game for exploring the InfoBip API, but it was like a desktop game and you had to install it. Is that where the idea sort of originated from? Yeah, it came from the internal community. So one of the engineers in the company created okay. it. Like okay, okay. And yeah, I ended up using it internally for like an onboarding tool. And then like, okay, let's do this because people like doing it. There's also there's also an internal developer event in the company. And mm-hmm. at that event, they have like 
a tournament in who as in who would like have the highest score in the video game right so it's like nice okay so this is like the, the internal community already likes this Let, let's make this like something that you know people outside the company would like as well okay so this was this came from internal which is really cool was that was it used by just employees or did like customer developers use it for onboarding too? For for now, it was just, just for internal, unfortunately. Okay. The way it, it wasn't, it's not a very polished one. Like you have to like sort of set it up and it'll work mm-hmm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's why we wanted the, the one that we're building now is, you know, a full web application. Like there'll be a URL, you just sign up, you create an InfoBip account and then you're off to the races, right? And so anyone can yeah. use it in- Nice. So do you have do you have an indication like that developers are going to respond well to this? I mean, I have a, a personal opinion, which is just like you said, where many of us have dreamt, dreamt of building video games and that's why we got into tech. And there's so much, there's so many people like that that I've come across. But besides that, like have you talked to customers or have you talked to the community and sort of got an indication like they would want something like this like how how are you internally justifying it i guess <laughs> uh, yeah so but <laughs> gut is the actual answer so there's a lot of things that we don't know a lot of things that we've like we've failed on a couple of things in the last year as well that we tried to do um, and for now it's gone really well in the sense of like when we try something out it's like we're gonna try this out it might fail but if it doesn't, it's going to turn out really good. And if it does, it doesn't matter. Like it, it is what it is, but we have learnings from it. And we actually do report that to the board. So we have a report for like the developer experience department coming up next month. And like our first case fails of last year. And like the company is okay with failure, but I'm not sure that other departments show that much <laughs> as you. And I, I take that as a good thing for us. Yeah. And I think it'll more for me in that sense, because like if you're just going to do what everyone else does really, really hard to compete. Right. And the, the, and on that note, the customers that we have now and the here, we've seen, you know, reactions like this, we certainly have a reaction like this. We're going to try it out as a sort of minimal viable product in the sense of that's why we did the first hoodies were like a 300, there were just 300 of them. So the reason it was 300 was one is limited. So it's like, there's more value to it. And two, like 300 won't, break the bank. Like I'm not going out and creating, you know, a hundred thousand of these and then like hoping it will sell. Right. So then we mm-hmm. were able to try that out. Same things with like meetups in Africa. We tried two last year. They were amazing. Now we have like 24 this year. Right. So the conference has been going in Europe every single year. We wanted to do America for a long time. Only now I feel that the U S has sort of gotten past COVID and now we're planning for this year and a smaller one. It's like, this is the budget we anticipate. This is the amount of people we anticipate. It'll be like in Europe, we have 5,000 people here. It'll be a thousand and this is our target. And if it fails, it's not a disaster in the sense like, like if we fail, we can learn and perhaps pivot, fix it. Or if it's complete failure, we could just dump it. Okay, we're not doing this because of an XYZ. So there's a lot of, you know, figuring things out. And if you're trying to do things that are not standard, I mean, you have to figure them out. And I feel sort of, blessed quote unquote that I'm able to do that inside the company. Yeah. So what it sounds like, and I love this because it sounds like InfoBip is very sort of open to experimentation, which I think like marketing, marketing is experimentation. It's just all hypothesis. Like I think that 
you know, developers are going to respond well to this. Here's why it's an educated guess. We have an educated hypothesis and you know what, if it, if it doesn't work out, like we've learned something. And so it's really cool that you share failures. And I think that's a really cool indication of InfoBip's culture that they're open to that. There was a, I read a really great book recently. It was by Seth Godin. It's an older book, but it's called Purple Cow. And the yep. entire the entire point to that book is like taking no risk is the biggest risk, like copying other people or trying to just fit in or trying to do the status quo is the biggest risk you can take because then no one's going to pay attention to you. Whereas doing things like creating your own fashion line or creating your own musical album or creating a office style mockumentary, which is what uh, Pluralsight recently did with their CloudShip Enterprise, or oh. if it's or if it's creating a game, like these are all types of things that are going to make you remarkable. Literally, people will remark uh, like, that they've seen it. It's going to hopefully spread awareness. And if it doesn't work, you learn from it and you try something else. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think that's like the like being. I've been you know running my own companies for the last you know. 15 years probably and now it's like the first time in a long time work for someone for like someone that is not myself and so without that I don't think I would even feel comfortable because like you do need that sort of bit of I feel that I need that experimentation to sort of push the border as far as I can and to your point like if you're going to do the same thing there's a huge risk in not in like keeping the status quo and I like believe that because if nothing else time passes you by and time is like the most precious people say this but I've actually, as age has come, I actually understand it more and more that like, if you don't use your time, it will pass and you won't have it anymore. So like use it wisely or like at least try, right? So you might not succeed, but you're at least trying because that's better than like just sitting down and doing nothing. Yes. I'm nothing, talking to someone else is not nothing, but you know, you understand what I'm trying to say. Yes. I mean, it's the, it's the same reason that I quit my job and went and went this route to try to help companies with developer education. And it, it I, I, I knew that it's something that I would regret if I didn't try it. And, you know, you know, I'm, and I'm still learning and it's been a really cool journey so far, but so going back to how you are quote unquote, selling it to leaders, which is, it's an experiment. We're going to learn from it. We think for these reasons that it's going to work. And, and then how are you approaching sort of the, the, the strategy of it, because you said that this is definitely a different type of audience, which makes sense. You're trying to market to people that are product unaware. They're not aware of your solution. And so it's it's an entirely different audience than people who are product aware that are either you know internal or already aware of your product out in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, there's the companies are are really different in the sense of like if they're product led or sales led, and mm -hmm. so our was always sales led. And why developers different is because the way it works in sales led is basically a salesperson from InfoBip talks to a manager, managing engineering manager, whoever may be on the other side, let's say Uber or whoever it may be, and they're like, hey, we offer this you know service. Like pricing is very important and probably, you know, SLA or a percentage that's guaranteed to be delivered. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, this works. Like any enterprise sales, it's more about checkboxes than it is experience. And if all the checkboxes are checkboxes are ticked, they sign a contract. And then the in the in the client's company will basically say, here's their API, figure it out. And there's no option for the developer now to say, 
you know, I don't like this or it doesn't work well or whatever it may be, right? Mm-hmm. They have to. And so that is the person in that company is very different from the companies where the developer, if if they're not the ones making the decision, they're the ones very much influencing the decision. So think any startup, small company, it could be a larger company, but it started as a startup, right? It's basically you have a task, you know, for InfoVape would be is like, you need to be able to send an SMS if X and Y happens. And then that developer goes out, Google's, you know, whatever it may be, or already knows the company and says, oh, mm-hmm. I know how to use this API. So let's just take Stripe because it's not competitive. For an example, it's like, we need a pay, we need a payment gateway. Like 90% of developers will just go to connect the API. They won't even think about anything else, right? Yes. And then you're stuck with it. It's done. It's Stripe. It's like, it's a hassle to switch it to someone else. And so these companies and these develop very much different than the ones that InfoWip has sold to throughout their existence, right? And so mm-hmm. these are the ones mm-hmm. that you get to. And so that's why it's a completely different mindset. And it's a different way that you address them. I mean, everything's different. If you look at websites for sales-led companies versus product-led companies, you'll see the, the, the amount of detail that is towards experiences, be it, you know, user interferences or developer experiences, they're much higher and they're, the, the products are usable. They usually don't need support. They don't need a contract. Everything's just like, did you just slide in and use it very, very easily, right? Whereas yep. when it's sales-led, the product is usually very complicated or it is complicated because it has to be or it's complicated because it wasn't made to be, because there's still work to be done to make it easy to use. So that's sort of the difference there. Yeah. And, and you're balancing them both, right? Because it's not like InfoBip is not going to stop their sales organization, right? So, so you got these two, these two different strategies that are going on at the same time, right? So you've got sales led and you've got product led and it makes, it makes a, it makes it the homepage a very like complicated thing. Cause now you've got multiple stakeholders and each one wants the different thing. We want the big companies. So we need to emphasize the value proposition to, you know, economic buyers. And then you've got the developer organization or the DevRel organization. That's like, well, we also need to be talking about technical features because that's what developers care about. And we need them both on the homepage. <laughs> that has been a very long discussion in the company, even before the game and how they were gonna how they were gonna solve it. And we've basically come to the conclusion that the dot com website should be continue to be you know the sales mm-hmm. and there should be a home for developers specifically which is infobib.com slash developers which talks directly to developers because yeah. Yeah. they have a home they're never going to go to infobib.com because there's nothing for them there they're not going to read marketing material because they're not interested it's either does it have the feature set that i have is the documentation good and you know how I sign up and how long does it take me to get my to my first sort of hello world app? That's mm-hmm. yeah. Right? And so like they're going to stay inside the developer hub as we call it, and that's it. So whatever you want to do on .com is fine by me. The only thing that we had to agree on, and this is going to happen in the next sort of two weeks, is the overall branding. So the website on right now on .com is still fairly old. So there'll be a new one where there's a different sort of design language for developers and for businesses, but it's, but it feels like the same company in the sense of like, if you think of Microsoft, if you go to the office webpage or go to the Azure webpage, 
like they're different, but you can feel that the same company is, you know, underneath that. So no, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I have seen that for like, if you go to um, Redis, Redis Redis.com is obviously going to be the enterprise Redis cloud service. But if you still go to Redis.io, I'm almost certain that I checked and that homepage has not changed since like 2010. It's still just like the GitHub sort of readme, really quick, like technical explanation of Redis. And they just haven't changed it because that's for developers and you know, no, no, no reason to change it. But then the Redis.com is, you know, designed for B2B and, and businesses. And so yeah. different companies will take different approaches to that because yeah. it's hard to, like, if you try to do everything on the same website, you're just going to get something mm-hmm. very awful because you're not telling anyone the story. And it's sort of my thesis is that the more technical audience, their website should be harder to find because one is always going to be harder to find in the sense one mm-hmm. will be not upfront and the less technical should have it easier in that sense, more upfront. That's my thesis and that's, a, that's how it's always been because I feel like developers are more technical and more educated in technology. And for them, it's easier to find something that's not, you know, straight in front of you. Whereas people that are not at that technical level will probably find it a bit harder. So you want to push them up on the upfront. And also the check size is obviously probably bigger on that part as well. Right. Yes. At least at the beginning, right? Because developers, if you count how much revenue comes from bottom up, Comparable companies to Infobit uh, generate anywhere from like 40 to 50% of the revenue. Like these end up being upgraded to account executive and managed accounts and whatnot, but they originated in the developer and self-service. So, but Mm -hmm. at the beginning, they're obviously going to be smaller. Yeah. So how, how are you thinking about this, this game-based experience in relation to like your B2B customers. And I think it's an interesting question because I tend to think that many CTOs have come from a technical background. They maybe even grew up in their career as developers, have the same kind of background where they they enjoy playing games or they enjoy playing like engaging experiences. And so I tend to see them as like a superset of the audience. So it's not just, you know, a game for developers, but it, it could be a game for even business decision makers that have a more, you know, technical background and, you know, maybe, maybe perhaps not the CEO that may not have a technical background, but a CTO. I don't know if you're, how you, how you think about that. If you've personas that you're sort of targeting with this game or how are you thinking about that? Sure. For CTOs, like I agree with you, like the CTO of InfoWip is very much a developer. I mean, there, there's other um, interesting story. So the CTO and co-founder of HashiCorp, I think I read somewhere that like he stepped down as a CTO and just ran, went back to being an individual contributor. Like the company is ultra successful, right? He, the person doesn't have to work, let alone like be an individual contributor, but it just likes coding so much that, you know, his passion. So he's continuing to do that. So definitely, yes. I mean, the way we're looking at it is for the video game is where we initially plan to sort of distribute it is inside the conferences. So if our conferences, so our conferences, like Mm -hmm. as I said, there's 5,000 people in the conference. We do plan to do like a, what's it called? A LAN game, uh, LAN party type at the conference to get initial sort of awareness around that. So it's like, 
you know, people that are there for speakers that are from other companies, they can be from, you know, HashiCorp or they can be from GitLab or it can be whatever. They're for them, but it's like, oh, we have this like tournament. You want to try it out? It's like, sure. Yeah, why not? And our thesis is that they're going to go out playing and there's going to be like a huge screen who has the highest score, right? And then people get hyped and people like it and they keep trying it and they tell other people about it. And that's definitely something that we want to be associated with. And sort of that's why we do the conference as well. You haven't been, you should come. The conferences, I'm deviating from the answer a bit, but there, there's a reason for that. The conferences are very experiential. So our conferences, even though they're developer conferences. So for one thing, our sponsor is Porsche and you get to drive <laughs> at the conference. For Ooh, real. That's sweet. Nice. Right? There's also simulators. Um, and also whoever's like the fastest on the simulator gets a free trip. This year it was to Istanbul to drive a GT4, a GT3 on the racetrack, like for nice. real. And then there's like, you know, the, you know, Porsche Taycans that you have to do around, you have to do around the track. They're not, it's not about fast, by being fast, it's about being, you know, secure and knowing how to drive. And so like, that's there. We also do, um, although I don't drink alcohol anymore. But I did like, we do have like cocktails there. You have DJs there. You have, you know, there's like a summer festival going on in the sense of the outdoor, the food being done. There's a lot of things going on at the conference outside the education on there. And I feel that that's what we've grown the brand on. And because people, we create these sort of serendipitous moments where people get to meet other people. Because one thing is just listening and then, you know, bumping into someone at the, at, like at the coffee stand. Oh, what do you do? Oh, what do you do? But this is like, you're waiting in line to drive, you know, like a hyper, it's not a hypercar, but it's a supercar, right? And there's like, oh, you're excited about it. You finish. And then you're talking to the people left and right of you in the line about that, right? And so like, and that's how you create better connections, I believe. And so this is just playing on top of that with the video game. Hopefully to your point, I mean, we'll take it to other events and hopefully the idea is also to create arcade machines in our campuses or offices where nice. people totally can play it. But to your point, can we do it like on sort of sales call or tell our like one of our customers, hey, try our video game out if you want to see our API? I honestly right. haven't thought about it. I think mm-hmm. it's an awesome idea. But the reason why I wanted to just go through the story is like how we thought about it and how we decided about integrating it. But what you said is actually a good idea. So thank you. Yeah, so I, when I... Because uh, it's funny because I'm sort of working through this with my client right now. So it's kind of top of mind, but they are in the same position where they've got, you know, a sales led organization and then they're trying to do product led and developer led. So all these different things. And so we're thinking about an interactive learning experience. And the reason I'm calling it a learning experience versus like a game is because it is game-like. It has gamification elements, but it is also very much like a self-paced course type of experience. And one of the things sort of we're working through was, you know, our sales organization goes into these sales presentations and they're trying to explain the value of the product. And like, wouldn't it be cool to have a standalone experience they could bring up that actually shows different customer use cases in an interactive way that is both educational, but also kind of fun to play with in like a visual way. So that's something that we're kind of experimenting with. I think what might be interesting for the audience is just hearing about like the reception first internally, how developers responded to that onboarding game. And then if you've gotten any kind of early feedback from like beta testers or anyone that's sort of playing with the game right now and 
how that's been going? Like, have you seen sort of increased engagement or are you even measuring that? Or how are you thinking about like what comes after this game launch? Sure, like where we are with the game right now, we've only shown it to some people outside of the in, outside of the team building it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, everyone that I've shown it and they're all, they're at least 30 years old. Everyone I've shown it to well, now when I think about it, like everyone's eyes light up a bit. So we definitely have interest and people are liking it. Obviously, it'll depend on when it's actually launched, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've also played video games probably that look appealing and you'd like to like them, but they actually are pretty boring later on. Right. <laughs> so hopefully that won't happen. And then as we start deploying the first and second level, we'll probably have beta testers internally, externally, but internally sort of try it out and give us feedback. And hopefully they'll give us good feedback and we can, you know, sort of do that. I mean, everything that we've done has been something new. So like creating fashion line versus creating a creating SDKs versus creating a video game, they're all their own, you know, they're all their own jobs in and of themselves. And if you want to do it at any quality level, you have to really get deep into it. Doing parallel things very deep is also very hard, but it's also very fun, right? So like, that's why we, that why that's why it might not be, the funnest game we hope it is but like we're aware that we might not succeed on that so we'll see how yeah. that goes yeah. yeah i mean do you think this kind of approach is achievable for smaller teams like how how big is the organization or your devrel organization that is okay. sort of working yeah, so, the, 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 so under developer experience we have devrel startups and the conference and mm-hmm. so devrel in of, of itself is six people the startup and the conference is seven people. Okay, so um, it's not it's not a massive organization. No, it's not massive. It's not. I mean, yeah. we started just with like three people, four people from the conference and one devrel person. So yeah. it's fairly larger than it was. But yeah, when you when I was building the team, it was first it was exceptionally hard to hire devrel people because one devrel people there's not that many of them like really good at what they do. And they're usually going for like the coolest young startup, which has like the coolest, you know, technology <laughs> or some, one of the big companies, right? So, you know, the Googles, Netflix, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're neither, like we're neither the cool startup nor we're the popular one. So we're somewhere, somewhere in no man's land. So getting quality people was very hard at the beginning, especially when they'd come to the website and we were, you know, sales led, not product led. So mm-hmm. it was like really hard for people on board and so sort of as you started hiring like people would bring in people and then we sort of got there and I'm also an advocate of not over hiring and I'd rather have a small team of people that you know feel really you know tight and as a team and can work together versus just like bloating the team and you know not having that fluidity between the members right so it's not a massive team to answer your question and also we do outsource a bit of things like for example the design of the video game like no one in the team knows how to do video game pixel art. And I don't think sure. anyone should know how to do that. Like, I mean, there's no one. To, it'd be, a, you know, I think it would be too much of an expense to hire a person just to do that. Like where we are right now, right? Yes, or yes. Like especially it's like the minimal viable product. It is the MVP. So like if it works, like if this video game ends up being something that I doubt it, but like millions of people use it every year or every month or every day, okay, we can think about getting a dedicated video game. But like for now, it's what engineer part of their time 
outsourced designer, outsourced music person, outsourced what's called story writer, because yep. we have an idea about what we want, but obviously you have, if you want it at high quality, someone has to like go down and do every single of these jobs really well. Yes, we just yes. sort of put that together. And so that's how we're making it work. And, you know, finding these people and, you know, we pay them per project per hour, wherever it may be. And you put like, you have a budget that you decided to invest in it. And, you know, we got it okay for that. And that's how we went to do it. So just, just like to end. So, so the, the team from Code Anywhere, the other one, we launched the hoodie, just when we're talking about smaller companies. So mm-hmm. Code Anywhere is like 13 people right now. And so we launched the InfoBib hoodies. They're like, these are awesome. Why don't we have these? And I'm like, because we invested that much money in them. And <laughs> whatever, like we made, we ended up making it back most of it anyway. Like it's not any type of like, like the, the amount of money that went out and came in is fairly similar. So it, there's like very little marketing expense that went into it, but there is a ca- cash flow a cash flow expense because you're like spending cash and hoping that it succeeds, right? Yes. And so mm-hmm. had that, I know when it would have been a success, I would have okayed the people at Code Anywhere. go ahead and do that too. But like the way like, like because cash cash flow there is it's not a 1.7 billion ARR company. It's like you have to be very careful of your cash. And I would spend it probably on creative low cost things, mm-hmm. which might not be that impactful, but they would make a like a higher impact per dollar or whatever it may be, because you just have to be safer because you have less budget there. So on that note, it's like it's not that companies that have less money can't compete. They can. You just have to try to be, you have to be more creative than you have, I guess. Yes. Right. So yeah. Yeah. It's a, there's a saying, and I don't know where I heard it from, or I, I just say it, but it's constraints breed creativity. Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. yeah, in order to, in order to compete and you have less resources that, that can be an asset, like you can look at it as an opportunity to get much more creative with what you do. And you, you treat things as small experiments and you do MVPs, you do really small tests and you see what works and what doesn't. And you go from there. I'm really, I'm really glad that you said that your the teams aren't massive. Like if, because I do think we're talking about games. I think that the impression is that you got to get an entire huge team to build a game. But I've shipped nine games over the past nine or 10 years because we have an open source game engine. And every single year we participate in a game jam. It's 72 hours. There's four of us and we ship an entire game in 72 hours. And some of our games have reached the top 100. Like they, they're not little toy games. They're pretty good. And it, none of us are real graphic designers. Like that, that is definitely one of the biggest sort of the hard parts in designing a game. If it needs to be graphical, I mean, getting someone who's a pro at it is good. We use asset packs. There's a really great Super Nintendo asset pack called Time Fantasy. And that's the one that I use. It is great because you can prototype your game. It looks like an RPG. It looks like it's from, you know, the era. But uh, I mean, you can all design games that are not super graphical. I mean, Wordle, anyone can design Wordle. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. five, five by five has some letters and it was acquired by New York Times into their daily crossword, which is what my wife does. So she does Wordle now. But I believe that the person who created Wordle, it like took them maybe a weekend to build something like that. And you could, there's different, you know, levels to games of like, what exactly do you want to build? What does it look like? Yes, if you want to build an RPG, then it's probably going to use some graphics. But you can also do 
like different types of styles that don't require a ton of graphics. So yeah, I think that the point is that don't let, you know, this, this type of creative marketing, like these ideas of like creating a game or something like that. If you're a small team, don't let it limit you too much because you can be very creative in the small constraints that you have. Yeah, I totally agree. I was at a, a round table early last year and there was like a question. The question was, what metric does your industry, because it wasn't like tech specific, what metric does your industry take as a positive, but you think it's a negative? And for me, generally in tech, I think it's headcount because mm-hmm. I I feel that a lot of companies add people and they they toot that success, you know, 10 people, 20, 30, 50, 100, 1,000, 10,000, whatever it may be. And to your point, and like, I'm looking at companies now, like, and you've probably done this before, like a team of six people or seven people that are highly motivated, highly talented can create, you know, best in class products yes, or whatever. There, there is a point where you do have to expand that, obviously, and all that. And it's not like we can stay that small forever, but you also don't need right away. Oh, I'm going to, and I feel that it's, I don't know if it's a generational thing or it may be when I talk to people, it's like, or someone, it might be, okay, so what do you do and how you're going to help us? And like the second sentence is like, oh, when I come, I'm going to hire X, Y, Z. It's like, I like, that's a totally different game and something that I don't understand. I mean, I do understand why people would want that, but it's like, you're you're hired or you're becoming part of a team to do something, not to hire another. Yeah. And I feel that that's happening in the industry and everyone's saying it's okay. And that's why you have over hiring and things that are like going on right now. If you look at comparable companies, you have companies that are a fraction of the size that are doing the exact same thing. So yeah, not saying that you don't need to hire. I'm just saying that you can do a lot with really good, highly motivated people. And I think people forget that very often. There's there's probably two things to say about that. First, there's an excellent book called The Mythical Man Month, which if you are a leader and you haven't read that, definitely read it because it basically debunks the myth of throwing more people at a problem. There's diminishing returns after a certain point. Um, And then something I actually just saw today from Brian Finster, who is a DevOps um, leader and authority, he had a great post where he was saying that he talks to teams all the time where they want to make sure that their entire team is 100% busy. And he's like, you know, what is 100% busy? If you, if you have a road that's 100% utilized, it's called a parking lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There needs to be, there needs to be space and there needs to be room. And, and I found that to be true when I was working in corporate America, where the higher you get, the less time to think that you have. Whereas like, I felt like being a senior engineer and being a lead engineer was perfect because you had enough time to think so you could make some more strategic decisions, but then you also got to to lead the team and to to try to make an impact. Whereas when you become like a principal engineer or you become a director, you're just stuck in meetings so long, you don't have time to think. So anyway, <laughs> that's my little rant. <laughs> that's actually true. I found myself that at one point I've changed that a bit this year is like, just answering emails and doing calls. And then I've been, that I've become very good at getting to inbox zero, but you're not thinking you're just like this inbox outlook teams, zombie person. Yes. Yeah. Getting things done and not actually adding value yep. and to create value. You, all that stuff 
So I no longer, I haven't had an inbox zero this entire year. So whatever it is, the month and a half, mm-hmm. it's out because I'm not used to it, but I'm getting real work done every day. So it's an interesting trade-off where if you want to get deep work done, you're probably, your inbox is going to be a mess. Yes. Um, <laughs> I read this somewhere called, it's like versus sand. In the sense of like, if you have a glass and if you pour it full of sand, you can't fit the big rocks in. But if you put in the big rocks, you can always add sand that goes in between the rocks. So the rocks are, you know, big tasks, whereas sand is, you know, menial little tasks, right? And that sort of visualizes that pretty well. And I don't know who I stole that from. So if they're listening, I apologize. I didn't make it. It's, It's pretty common. Actually, in one of my group coaching programs, we have an accountability each week. And that's what we do. We list our big rocks, our pebbles, and our sand. Oh, okay. um, and there's, there's different variations of that. I do recommend the book make time. It's pretty good, but they talk about your big highlight, which is, you know, the big thing that you want to get done today. And then everything else sort of comes after that. But the make time book is really good. It has a lot of actionable tips and it's by two design sprint, you know, product design sprint folks. And so it has a lot of great sort of real world tips, like taking stuff off your phone, uninstalling apps from your phone, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, yeah, it's a definitely a good book, but th- that type of thing, getting things done is another framework to do. What's the next smallest task you could do. There's all sorts of like these sort of productivity tips. Yeah. So we're, we're getting pretty close to the end. I want to make sure that we sort of wrap up with kind of a bigger question, which is like, we've talked a little bit about how there's a, a challenge in, in hiring DevRel. I mean, it's, what do you see as the biggest challenge when you're marketing and educating your developer audiences? I think it's just attention span. Look at the number of dev. So I started a dev tool company again in 2009 with Code Anywhere. And to VCs, we raised probably a million dollars in 2014, which was not a lot back then. Business to consumer product out there, be it, you know, you know, fashion or gas or food or whatever it may be, it's almost that hard as well. So just getting how to become more creative to get their attention, but knowing that it's a different type of attention, right? Like it's for developers, why we don't generally use marketing is because for developers, you have to solve their problem. If you solve the problem, then they'll use your product initially mm-hmm. or subscribe on your product. So like, how do you get the word out about the problem that you're solving to developers without marketing? And so in generally, it's like communities and whatnot. But how many communities can a developer be part of? Like, how many Slack groups can you have in your Slack before it you know, falls apart and you're not looking at them anymore? So mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest challenge right now. Yeah. Do you, do you see like the this effort that you're doing to try to create this sort of game-based onboarding, do you think that that would help capture capture attention a little bit more than like a plain old article would? I feel it will. Like my feel with, again, with, I'll give you just an example of the hoodie that we launched in, in November. So I went to a conference, it was developer relations conference um, a month after and people that didn't know me, some of them actually knew the hoodie and they, and then inherently knew me. So they've, heard about it across, you know, the grapevine, like people have mm-hmm. talked about it. So that's good, right? Someone that you knows something that you created. And so that's what I'm hoping to get out of the game as well, because, you know, you can buy a Super Bowl, a Super Bowl ad, which costs you whatever it costs you to get eyeballs on that. Probably <laughs> won't work. 
And so like, how can you, again, inside your constraints, make something that goes above the noise? It's like something, oh, this hasn't happened. This is an interesting thing. And I'll just like retweet it, retweet it or post it on Reddit or Hacker News or whatever and get sort of eyeballs to there. People probably forget it, you know, three days later, but it's just like one of those consistent messages or reminders that you exist that has to continually be coming for that person or for us to at one point come and use your service. Yeah, makes total sense. Uh, we've got a little bit of time for a bonus question. This is just a fun one, but do you have a favorite game or are you playing games right now? Uh, right now I'm playing the game of life. <laughs> so there's a different scoreboard. I played so many games, to be honest, but the last game that I played deeply. So there's, so I played every Super Mario game that exists. <laughs> nice. Like, so it's time. I do like a little segment at the end. It's called drop an apple. It's your chance to drop some knowledge on the audience. Are you ready? I just have one question. Um, what's one thing you wish someone had told you early on about creating content and education for developers? What do I wish someone told me earlier about creating content for developers? I think for creating content developers, you, and I've discovered this right now, is that you have to go all in on your niche and personally. So that's sort of the only way to create content. All in being the content that you read, the people you interact with, both in person and you know virtual, be it Twitter, Reddit, Hacker, whatever it may be. Like you have to be part of that community to be able to create content for that community for it to be able to reach the audience that you want. I, if someone had told me that sooner, I don't know what if I would listen, but that is what I would tell someone that's starting out now. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I've heard people say developers trust developers, right? Absolutely. And that's speaks to that. Awesome. Well. Ivan or Yvonne, where, where can people go to find out more about what you're up to and hopefully go and look and once you've released the game, they can play it. So basically just follow me on Twitter. I've been super active the last sort of two months because again, to your last question, I have, you have to be where your audience is and all of them are on Twitter. I celebrated my 14th year on Twitter. I got an, uh, <laughs> the other day, but wasn't very active. So first name, like Twitter slash first name, first name, last name, Ivan Burazin, and you can find her and I'll be pretty active and anyone there and everything regarding the video game, InfoBit and, you know, code anywhere, cloud development environments, developer velocity, developer experience, that sort of thing. If you're interested, you can find it there. Perfect. And I will include links to that and everything that we've kind of talked about in the show notes there. If you want to get a quick link. Well, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Likewise. Amazing. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yvonne. I know I did. Here are my takeaways when it comes to developer marketing and education. Yvonne shared how InfoBIP's culture values experimentation and views failure as a valuable way to learn. They don't just make huge bets either. They start with small experiments, like only producing 300 hoodies, or hosting a LAN party at the conference to see if their ideas get the results they expect. When it doesn't work, they record it as a learning and move on to the next big idea. 
Games can be used not just for internal onboarding, but also act as a lead magnet for your developer-focused target market. But it's hard to design games that are both fun and educational. Game design is already hard enough. Then you add the layer of introducing learning objectives. That affects the whole process. And then in the developer space, you mix in coding and SDKs. Man, talk about a tough problem. For a great example of a programming learning game, check out Twilio Quest, which Kevin Winery designed Twilio to teach students to code. We don't have exact numbers, but in an interview with Developer Mode, Kevin shared that users acquired through Twilio Quest onboard twice as fast as users overall. He even said that recruiting, engineering, and even the sales team uses it, sending it out as a resource to prospects. So that is definitely in line with what we talked about on this episode. You know what? Developers love games. I'm a gamer. Most of my developer friends play games. It's a great fit for the audience. Really, gaming is a human experience. The earliest games date back to the caveman days. There's an entire cottage industry of serious games that are used for training pilots, doctors, and other industry professionals. If developers learn by doing, and we learn best when we play, then it should be no surprise that game-based learning results in the highest engagement and conversion across any form of content. If you're interested in whether an onboarding game could be a good fit for your dev tool or API, definitely reach out and have a chat with me. That's it for this week. I'm Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me again next time for Dev Educate. If you'd like to get tips on removing barriers to adoption when scaling your dev tool, check out my blog at kamranayub.com daily. You can also reach out to me directly with questions or comments through my website or on Twitter at Kamran Ayub. I hope you have a lovely day.